I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. With American consumerism in full holiday force, this year's greenest gift might surprise you. People's time really has no environmental impact. Shifting your spending from physical stuff, materials and, and physical goods to paying for people's time, that truly is a way to reduce your environmental impact on the world. And later, from green gifts to charitable giving, how much of your money should you give away? A little bit on a regular basis, I think psychologically is really healthy for everyone. Or even giving a bit of time, or even just being generous in the way that you interact with people around you. But as you get into having some form of means, I really think starting to increase that is a healthy thing to do, especially because like, the research shows that money has a really marginal impact on your own happiness, but it can do a lot more for those who have a lot less. The practice of giving with the planet in peril. That's coming up on Life Examined. The holidays can be a stressful time, and we all know the pressure of shopping for that perfect gift. But as we scour Amazon or make one last dash to the mall, is there another part to this question? Are we simply buying too much stuff, knowing that almost all of it is bad for the planet? The climate crisis has more of us looking for environmentally friendly gifts this holiday season. And I don't mean more bamboo and water containers, rather green gifts that don't contribute to any more waste. Professor Roland Geyer is no Scrooge. He recognizes the importance of giving and the social role it plays to keep and deepen relationships. But he says there are other ways of keeping the holidays magical, and it's time to rethink what we value most. Roland Geyer is a professor of industrial ecology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of the book, The Business of Less, The Role of Companies and Households of a Planet in Peril. Roland Geyer, welcome to Life Examined. Well, thanks for having me on your show, Jonathan. All right. Well, as people may be hearing us on KCRW, they could be rushing off to the mall or doing some last-minute Amazon uh, buying. Uh, This is kind of that frenzied moment where we get to see (laughs) the best and the worst of American consumerism in action. What's it like for you watching people in this phase of the year as all we do is buy and consume, and you're somebody who understands the implications of all of this? What's this season like for you? Well, I I want to make very clear that I'm, you know, I'm on both sides of that. Um, I'm I'm an observer, but I'm also observing myself because I'll probably be out there rushing around (laughs) trying to get last minute gifts for my family and my friends. And uh, um, we're we're not uh, on a sustainable track. Um, you know, there are multiple environmental crises that are brewing: um, uh, biodiversity loss, um, climate change, um, increasing environmental pollution, and uh, at the same time, this this is the time to uh, buy gifts for your loved ones. So it's uh, it's a challenge for everyone, including myself, to reconcile that. Well, talk about how how you've been writing about this on a much larger level with your new book, this idea of consuming less. Begin to tell us just some of the ideas you have about the role of consumerism, the economy, and where where this is all taking us. Right. So, um, in a way, the book is really a summary of everything I've learned about environmental sustainability and the role of industry and the role of consumers or households Um, in uh, creating this unsustainable amount of environmental impact and and to try and find a way out of it. 
And um, I think one of the key insights I had is that even the professionals, you know, my colleagues and, and myself for a long time, I think we for too long, we try to kind of design our way out of these environmental crises. And the idea was we all we would have to do is find that magic green material and that magic no impact energy source and and just design environmental impact out of our goods and services and and then all would be well and so i've come to the conclusion that we we need to shift the conversation from how we produce and consume and what we produce and consume to how much because i think you know like even the the greenest energy sources don't are not without environmental impact and with materials it's even more difficult it's even harder you know i i would go as far as saying there is no such thing as a green material every material has significant environmental impacts so that's why less rather than you know something else different um plays such a big role in my book which is interesting because the way that so many products are sold and marketed to us are as as green or as biodynamic or as you know lower impact on the earth. So, do you find some of those terms to just be a, a bit misleading? I yes, I would I would say that's even an understatement. Yeah. I find some of them outright infuriating, and and you know I think there is a mix going on between kind of willfully misleading. Um, and and some good faith attempts also at greening products um, that that are just I think more maybe about misunderstandings or, or lack of understanding of or where you know what green actually means and and uh, where environmental impact comes from in you know in the supply chain and in the life cycle yeah. of products. Are there any examples that come to mind of something that's marketed as green uh, that is, kind of makes you laugh? Well, I guess the the most ridiculous term that I always tell my students is is basically meaningless um, is when something called recyclable. You know, like it. You know, you can recycle it, and and I just always tell my students, well, it's you know, it's a, it's a question of money, right? If you if you give me a million dollars, I don't know, you know, I don't care what your product is, I'll recycle it. Uh -huh. um, it's just, you know, the the question is, well, will would it actually be recycled if it ends up in a blue bin? So recyclable is, is one of those, um, I, I would say, close to meaningless terms. Um, recycle content um, is slightly different, but it, it kind of really depends. There's a big distinction between pre-consumer and post-consumer recycle, recycle content. Um, and that's not always clearly labeled. And, and this is important because, you know, pre-consumer scrap material routinely gets recycled mm. anyway. Um, so it's, you know, you don't get brownie points <laughs> for recycling pre-consumer scrap it's just it's just what companies do anyway if you really care and and you want to make sure that you have recycled content that that really is meaningful then then um, one needs to look for the amount of post-consumer recycled content mm. in that product or in that packaging which is which is more desired that that would be the better choice if you're looking to really make a smart decision 
Yes, it would. That would really would have made a difference um, because it is material that is harder to recycle and is not routinely recycled. So by, you know, seeking out and it, you know, in almost all cases, recycling material does have lower environmental impacts than making virgin materials, mm. you know, from virgin resources. So um, not always, but almost always. So so that is a good thing. Um, but then, yes, um, it's that post-consumer material waste that, that is the problem. So by making sure that that gets recycled and really ends up in a product again, that, uh, that makes a real difference. I know one of the things you are a huge proponent of in this book is moving away from buying things to buying um, like services or experiences. Can you, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, would would love to. So... You know, once once I convinced myself, and I'm trying to convince others in in my book that there isn't really, there is no. I even wrote an article once saying there is no such thing as a green product. All products, physical products, have environmental impacts, um, and with materials even worse. Then, of course, the question is now now what? Um, so if I can't just design or buy my way uh, out of sort of environmental impact for living um, what what can I do and and that's when I had this thought uh, that really there is one thing that does have no environmental impact and and that is time that is people's time and people's skills so in the book I call it labor and but I mean it you know very broadly so I'm a I would call myself a knowledge laborer right people's time really has no environmental impact. Um, so shifting your spending from physical stuff, uh, materials and, and physical goods to paying for people's time, that truly is a way to uh, reduce um, your environmental impact on the world. And at the, yes, and at the same time, you know, like create um, social benefits, not just environmental benefits. I'm thinking of examples of this. I mean, perhaps a getting a massage or a music lesson or something like that, I guess, right? Yes, that's that's sort of, you know, now uh, that it's it's the time for gifts and, you know, gifts are important. That's exactly sort of things I I'm thinking about. Um music lessons, dance lessons, massages, um concert tickets, um an invitation to dinner, a guided hike or a climb or a kayak trip and and even other things that may be sort of less obvious but it's basically also about um, spending your money on people's time is um, say the repair of a, a favorite piece of clothing hmm. of your of your loved one or, or repair of another other item so I uh, I'm a bit of a shoe person I love nice shoes for, uh-huh. <laughs> for some reason or the other and of course no nothing lasts forever so my favorite pair of English handmade shoes um, uh, the left one had a hole in it and um, I, I didn't know how where to get it repaired and I kind of gave up on it and then my wife that was uh, a Christmas present to her she found a way to have them resold and then um, packaged them really nicely, put them under the Christmas tree, and that was definitely one of one of my favorite Christmas presents that year. Yeah, that, no, that's wonderful. 
Why do you think, I mean, even aside from the environmental argument, which I, I totally buy, why do you think purchasing time or giving the gift of time could be more valuable than just a physical object? Like what, what's, is there something kind of deeper happening there too? I, I think, I think there is, yes. Um, you know, and so one of the fields, sort of subfields of industrial ecology is what we call, you know, the theory of sustainable consumption. And typically, uh, sustainable consumption um, is in, you know, in, in a simplified way, it sort of pits, you know, consumption as well-being versus sort of consumption or consumer culture as a social pathology. Um, so the, the one theory kind of being that, you know, we just like stuff and it makes us feel good, so more is better. And then the other idea being that, no, we're actually over-consuming and it's not just bad for the planet, but it's actually also bad for our mental health, so less is better. And then there is uh, what, what I find really interesting and fascinating is a, a third perspective that basically says, ah, it's complicated. And what it points out is that material goods have a symbolic role, not just a functional role. And, you know, material goods say something about who we are and what our position is in society, what, what our relationships are with others. And I think that symbolic symbolic role becomes really obvious when it comes to gifts. Mm. And so I think giving the gift of time might be a way to kind of decouple, you know, the the material thing from that symbolic role of giving. And um, and I think it could I I see it as a sort of way to to really uh, fulfill that symbolic role of really showing the appreciation to someone um, that you have or the love that you have for someone with, without having to buy something that they probably don't even want or need. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that idea. And, and then there's a part of me that thinks how hard this can also be to sell when, you know, we grow up with almost this mythology of gift giving and children's books with Christmas trees covered with presents all around them. And it's just, it's so baked into the images of our culture and that this is going to be um, a big but important push that's going to take quite a bit of effort, don't you think? Absolutely. I don't. And, and that's why I like this third perspective, right, on mm. on sustainable consumption. It says it's, you know, it's complicated. It's yes, of course, you know, these things, they they do play a role. So, you know, a, a, a grandparent wants to express his love for the grandchild um, with a thing. And the grandchild is, you know, made feel special and loved by receiving a thing. So so one way I'm trying to address that and, you know, I don't want to sort of, uh, sound too clever. I kind of learned that the hard way, <laughs> to be honest, is that, you know, like if, if you actually do give the gift of time, which is not a thing, um, you know, like concert tickets, I make sure I actually put the concert tickets in a really nice box. And, yeah. you know, I do sort of, you know, maybe have a, a, a few little things that sort of relate to it um put it in the box wrap it really nicely so you know that that's that someone whoever gets those tickets actually you know has a, a present to open and has that sort of whole experience of oh look here's a present and opening up and seeing it so yes i i completely 
uh, agree with you that that this you know we're we're kind of in this sort of lock-in of expressing our love with sort of stuff rather mm. than time and ideas and I know you've you've shared a little bit about your own family before, which is how not just how you think about giving gifts, but but I think also just honoring that the holidays can be about more than just gifts, but they can be about experiences, they can be about traditions, they can be about um, these other timeless things. Can, can you share a little bit about that as well? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and so one thing that really made me think about this is when um, the other day, just recently, uh, my you know family of four, um, my wife and I, we have two teenage uh, kids, um, we were sitting around the dining table and uh, we're talking about you know, Christmas is coming, it's December, and are you all excited? And everyone was really excited. And then um, we just asked the children, so what's, you know, like, why are you excited? What's what's so great about Christmas? And of course, expecting that they say, yeah, we're getting presents. And of course, presents play a big role. But what really surprised me is what both um, kids said there, 14 and 17 now they said oh we have all these nice traditions that we really love that we sort of you know took from my family and my wife's family but also traditions that we just kind of invented over Mm -hmm. the years that are now very specific to our family um and yeah it was it was surprising and and really lovely to hear um that this is really important to our children that that it's meaningful to them kind of the last thing i'd expect to hear from a 14 or a 17 year old kind of <laughs> yeah yeah we were really we were really surprised um in 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 a really good way and you know to be honest it kind of also some of those traditions i love and others <laughs> i think others love more like decorating the christmas tree mm-hmm. um but it what it what it told me is that this this is really meaningful so um you know like yesterday actually was the night we decorated our christmas tree and i made a real effort i i you know, hearing from the children how important these traditions are i said like okay i, I need to pull my weight here and uh, you know, have make 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 a ceremony out of you know bringing the box with the with all the decorations out and then yeah. putting them on the tree and and it was a lovely time. Well, you and I are both in this kind of Santa Barbara area, so of course we're we're familiar with the company Patagonia, who for for decades has been pushing this idea of buy less. If it's something is worn out, bring it bring it to us, we'll fix it. But that idea is starting to kind of grow. For example, I'm seeing uh, the brand Levi's do something very similar. They're marketing the idea of you don't have to wash your jeans every single day; you can wear them for a week. And not only that, don't go buy a new pair of jeans every week either. And this is a really big manufacturer that's beginning to use that type of language and that type of marketing. And I wonder what's it like for you as you begin to hear some of this stuff and uh, does does this tell us that we're heading in a new interesting direction? I would love to think so. Mm. To be honest, Jonathan, there's a certain amount of deja vu. <laughs> Oh. Because yeah, because I've been you know I actually did my I did my thesis on reuse and recycling, um, but I did that over twenty years ago, um, and yeah, and 
so so there's always been this idea and this excitement that we could we could really dematerialize our lifestyles and and massively reduce environmental impact if we just reuse things more and if we repaired things and and maintained them better um and it has not happened so far um i i i do agree with you that it something seems to be different this time around and i think there is and and maybe it's the the increasing obviousness of these environmental crises i think it you know like every year um climate change is just more and more kind of in our faces it, especially here in in the southwest and and in california yeah um so it just becomes more and more obvious so i i i do think um that there is a a rethinking going on even uh, within companies and um yes and i've for some reason i in the last five years i ended up doing a lot of research in the apparel space and yeah this this idea that maybe even the big companies could change their business models away from just you know selling apparel but but actually um to uh business models that include sort of repair businesses i i find that very exciting that being said, are there are there any physical things that you you would give your give your nod of approval to in terms of you know the, the the resources used, the materials that are generated? That okay, it's it's not going to be a net zero, but it's not going to be horrible either. I yeah, again, as I said, you know, like um, in actually in preparation to your show, I uh, I made a point of going on onto the internet and googling green gifts. Yeah. <laughs> And and sort of looked at the selection and the, a lot of bamboo <laughs> and uh, and natural you know the word natural comes up a lot and but I I would say like the vast majority of what I see I would not label green mm. um, so in a way I would say you know if if it's a physical gift then I think you you should just make sure it's a well made and uh, even more importantly that the recipient really is going to use it. That idea of well-made is important, something that's not going to be thrown out in six months. Exactly. Some, something that really lasts and that also is really going to be used, you know, rather than something where, you know, like the symbolic nature is, is comes across, thank you so much for this, but, you know, like you're never going to use it because it's it's just not your, your thing. Yeah. And, you know, like... Um, a reusable, you know, like a lot of those green, in inverted commas, gifts that I saw on the internet, they, they are like reusable things, reusable coffee mugs, reusable water bottles, and so on. But of course, a reusable coffee mug, however well made, is, is not green if it's, you know, the 15th <laughs> coffee mug in your cupboard. Right. And, and even, you know, my household has um, a, a, uh, worrying amount of reusable coffee mugs at this point. I think past the point of being green. Yeah. Well, Roland, any any final thoughts that that you've had, uh, kind of heading into this season, and reflections ar- around you about about what you're seeing and feeling in, in this culture. Uh, one one thing that that I thought this year, which is sort of a, a newer thought, you know, when I when I thought about the gift of time, um, I usually think of other people's time. Right, like as we talked about a dance lesson or uh, a guided kayak trip or mm. uh, tickets to a concert, but I'm actually uh, this year I'm thinking um, more about g- giving the gift of my time to people, like offering 
with my wife to babysit for uh, a, a couple that we know with uh, young kids so they could actually get away for, yeah. a, for an overnight trip or something like that, um, which I know they are desperate to do, but you know, don't know how to, how to uh, have the, the child looked after. So, so the gift of my time is something that I've been thinking about um, a lot lately. I've been speaking with Roland Geyer, professor of industrial ecology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the author of The Business of Less. Roland, thank you for the time. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Still to come, from spending your money on things to giving it away for charity. Why it's important psychologically and morally to share your wealth. That's ahead on Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. Throughout history, the practice of giving has been deeply interwoven in all cultures, religions, and spiritual traditions. Giving brings people together, and it changes the world to be kinder and more equitable. So when it comes to living a good life, is it important to set aside a portion of our time and money to those less fortunate or unspoken for? When we give, do we do it to feel better about ourselves or to make a difference in the world? And just how much of our money and time should we give away? To shine some light on these and some of the moral and ethical questions behind intentional giving, we're joined by Luke Freeman. He's the executive director of Giving What We Can, a community of effective givers. Luke Freeman, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Life Examined. Nice to have you here. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Giving, I feel like, is such a complicated topic. There's so many ideas on it, um, lots of different theories. But if we just think about this very abstractly for a moment, what do you think is the psychology behind charitable giving? What are some of the ideas behind this? Yeah, there's kind of two major perspectives. There's from uh, the giver and the recipients. Um, but generally speaking, the research in psychology is incredibly positive for giving uh, for everyone involved. Um, even just on the small kind of day-to-day -day things, you will probably notice if you, uh, you know, shout someone a coffee and, uh, and then the next time they sh someone else shouts you a coffee, mm. only one of you has paid for something. Uh, you feel a lot better about it than paying for two coffees for yourself. But between the two of you, uh, you've had a kind of a total sum positive experiences is much higher. So just the act of giving itself is great for the giver and for the receiver, let alone uh, the good things that can be done with money if you're really intentional about it as well. Right. And talk about this idea of altruism. Maybe I'm just kind of a depressed person that questions everybody's motivations, but but how does that factor in here? I mean, do we do we give really for another person or for ourselves? What do we know about that? Yeah, so look, there is many different theories around this. Um, some people might say that altruism Altruism is a selfish act um, because it makes the giver feel good as well. But right. it really does depend with the frame uh, for which you're giving. Some people give just to feel good. And uh, look, that's good. It can improve your life. But many people give with the intention of helping others. And in, in fact, I 
in our community, giving what we can, that is the most important part about giving is is uh, the fact that you're helping others and that to try and help others as much as you can when you give. Uh, so not to give just to feel good, but to give because you really want to see the world be better uh, for someone in it in a significant way. Yeah, it, it does strike me how, you know, if we look at all the major religious or spiritual traditions too, that there was some aspect of giving, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, and... You know, something I find quite interesting uh, with uh, world religions and cultures, uh, things that pop up again and again generally have some really important roles that they're playing. <laughs> and mm. uh, giving has has many roles. It's pro-social. It um, changes the world to be more equitable, which is uh, in many ways very, very good, um, creates more social cohesion. Um, and yeah, it is a tool of which we can use to change the world in, in the way that we want to see it. Um, and it doesn't create need to have a market for it. It doesn't need to have uh, someone administering it and telling you to do it. It's just something you can do on your own accord. You can say, this is a world that I want to see and I'm going to start doing what I can. And there are organizations uh, yeah, set up to do exactly that. So why do we often get in so much trouble giving or why are there so many stories about giving gone wrong? You know, the, whether it's the recipients of it didn't feel like it was the right thing or the money got squandered or the idea was wrong or what, you know what, this is just something we hear about over and over. So one of the things that makes charities you know, so great that they're set up um, purely for social good uh, also um, can be one of the underlying problems is that um, you don't have the same feedback mechanisms as you do, um, say, with the private sector. If you're if you're buying a coffee uh, and it costs five thousand dollars instead of five dollars, you'd know <laughs> you, you you were both buying and receiving that uh, thing. Whereas if it something uh, costs five thousand dollars more uh, for the donor, um, but they don't know because they just I just want to give X amount of money and they're not thinking about what happens at the other end. Um, but the recipients just get the you know the good or service or whatever it is at the end of the day um neither of those parties are really necessarily upset but there's this huge opportunity cost of like good that wasn't done were the mm -hmm. charity much more effective um there are of course some you know ones that are intentionally set up to you know do harm uh you know you hear about scams in all sorts of industries businesses and charities and, and things like that but the charitable sector by and large is actually uh incredibly highly um uh regulated to prevent things like you know straight up scams but it, it doesn't have the same mechanisms for effectiveness that we see in things like the marketplace uh, or even that we see in, in governments where you have people voting on their own interests uh, they see what the government budget is and they see what it's being spent on and they really care about that because they mm. it comes back to them uh, whereas when the donor and the beneficiary are separated and you don't have organizations um, set up or to look at, into things like effectiveness, uh, you uh, just have a system which is quite likely to not prioritize effectiveness. <laughs> right. Well, that's, I think, one of the always the big questions is as, it's as if the industry itself of giving is so big that it has to support itself. The middle players have to support themselves. The administrative overhead gets so big. And that's something I know I, I even see in, in foundations around where I live. And it makes me wonder, like, why are there 30 people working there? You know, um, what would you say about that? Yeah, look, administrative costs um, and things like yeah, advertising and all that, they, they can really add up um, and be a big part of what makes a, a charity not so effective. Um but it actually turns out at the end of the day, the biggest differences in impact come from the types of things that 
charities are doing um, and the types of populations that they're trying to help. You know, at one, one extreme, you, you know, could have a charity that set up to give massages to millionaires. Um, you know, it's improving <laughs> their lives, but um, it doesn't do a lot of good where it, uh, in the world relative to you know, something which is helping those who need it the most and, and providing it really effectively. Um, like a lot of this is now covered by foundations and governments. But for example, when um, uh, a lot of vaccines uh, weren't available and were only available in many places in the world through charitable organizations um, and like, organizations like Rotary actually did a lot of good work in this space many years back. Um, yeah, it's an incredible amount of life um, and that was saved due to people just being um, you know, generous. Um, and that's very different compared to... Um, you know, helping um, a private school kid go to, uh, you know, get a further ahead in life, which you do see, you know, the types of mm. things that people, are, uh, charities are set up to do can be very different. Um, and also then you add on top of that, their attitude towards um, uh, what the kind of custodianship of money uh, can be very different. Um, and, you know, sometimes those things correlate. <laughs> Is there one sector of giving, say it's poverty, uh, healthcare, something like that, that you have found has actually been quite successful, that's really been well executed, where the dollars have gone to, to, to achieve really good work. Yeah. So it's a few things that we notice that are particularly kind of high impact. So yeah. uh, international development, um, global health, uh, things like that, that go to help some of the world's poorest with things that are known to reliably get them out of poverty. Things like preventing preventable diseases um, or improving economic conditions. Um, that has this kind of incredible uh, cumulative return. Uh, and there are some organizations that do it particularly well. Uh, one of our um, charity evaluators we often recommend is GiveWell, um, and they do lots of really thorough research. There's also a lot of um, other stuff in this space, which I often uh, look towards and things that are kind of cutting edge, like um, charity entre entrepreneurship is another program I often recommend that is trying to start charities doing new interventions. So one uh, recently that I was looking at does red lead regulation um, advocacy, because mm. uh, apparently many, many countries in the world um, have things like lead paint or use uh, lead as uh, colouring in spices and things like that. There's no regulation against it. And so people just ingesting lead and we know how terrible that can be. So there is a lot of really just high impact stuff in that area. There's also, um, uh, if you, and I think the reason behind that is we find that typically you're going to get the most impact if you're helping those who have very little ability to advocate for themselves. So if you're a taxpayer in America or in Australia um, and you're, or you have means, you can uh, vote for your own interests. You can, uh, you're living in a very rich economy. You can use your market power uh, to get what you want in the world. Whereas if uh, you know, someone in you know, a country like the Congo, they don't have the ability to influence US policy to you know, no. help them. They've already been kind of disenfranchised due to things like colonialism and like, um, and certain conditions like, um, and, you know, things like pollution from countries outside them. So they have very little ability to uh, advocate. And that, that does change over time through some you know, international cooperation, but it's still, they're just very likely to be left out. Um, similarly, in, in um, animals, uh, they don't have an ability to talk for themselves. So like animal welfare conditions can be really, really terrible um, in ways that that doesn't really necessarily have to be. It's not terribly expensive uh, to change certain things like farming practices to make them less terrible for animals. And the other uh, population who's often left out is 
our you know descendants future generations so the things that we're doing that are going to affect lives you know far into the future um, the policies that we have now the the types of activities that we're doing now that change the environment that change um, economic conditions and things like that um, you know, those things can have really far long run effects and, and those people have no way of representing themselves. They're not, they're not here yet, but I know that my great grandchildren are lives that I care about and the things that we're doing today are going to affect them. One thing I see uh, both in myself and in others is, is not just right, one's ability to give uh, money, but to give one's time as well. That's, yep. that's another question here. And and this is just anecdotally what I've noticed, say, whether it's money or time, it, it feels that aside from just saying, I want to do good, I want there to be you know, mm. something or something to get better, that the giver needs to kind of believe or be invested in the field in which they're giving. You know, like you wouldn't donate your time to something you don't care about. You're not going to teach dance if you don't care about dance. I mean, do you find that there's an importance of kind of interconnecting one's passions to making the world a better place and targeting that out so it feels like more of a connective process? It's definitely where it starts. Um, so generally people have some uh, some circumstance, some context, which really uh, triggers them to start engaging with the world in, in this way. Um, and, then, and then I think that what I really encourage people to do is start realizing what are those values. So for me, um, a kind of a personal example is I, I lost my nana to breast cancer and mm. uh, you know the pain of losing a loved one and even more so the pain of seeing them go through um, suffering um, really you know it was quite it hit me um, and at that moment I could have given to a, a charity that um, I'd seen in the hospice uh, that um, that worked to help people going through that. Um, yeah. the, the work to prevent it would be even better because um, that would prevent the situation to start with. But, you know, when I looked into it, it's a pretty tricky uh, problem. And in fact, a lot of preventative work is already done. Um, and then you find like, ultimately to solve that problem, it might be something like um, actually looking at the way that aging works and like cells um, yeah. You know, yeah. replicate. Um but it came down to it and I was like, what is it that I really care about? It's not that I really care about um, breast cancer. That's the thing that hit me recently. Um, but it's, I care about suffering. I care about lo people losing loved ones. Um, and like quite astonished to know that I could make it, you know, a really small dent in, in that, uh, dent in that, um, where I to try to give uh, within the thing that had affected me. Um, but I could save a life and you know, prevent many, many, many uh, people from suffering by giving to something else uh, that mm. didn't have a personal connection with, say, uh, providing anti-malarial bed nets um, in a different part of the world. But the thing that really rang true to me is the thing that I care about, ultimately, uh, you know, improving the world, having happy lives, um, preventing suffering, preventing people from losing loved ones. That's what really stuck with me was... Uh, and when you kind of take it to that next level of getting to the core value, um, that really opens up a lot of opportunities to do just so much more good. I'm really curious from that idea of what, and I know there's not one answer to this, but what, what do you think, just you, Luke, what do you think in terms of how much one should give of their income? What, what would you say? 
I think it, it is important for people to be um, in a place of financial uh, security, um, but that yeah. can look very different to different people. Um, so um, I, I know some people who see financial security as being able to retire early. Uh, that's not my view. Um, I think for yeah. many people, uh, making sure that you are in a kind of reasonable place, um, that you're able to you know, pay off bad debts and things like that is a, is a good place to be in to then to start consider giving. I think many people, even giving a little bit, if it's, you know, um, a little bit on a regular basis, I think psychologically is really healthy for everyone. <laughs> um, mm. Or even giving a bit of time or even just being generous in the way that you interact with people around you because that is something that I think is always worth n- nurturing, that attitude, because it really pays dividends over the course of your life. But as you get into having some form of means, um, I really think starting to increase that is a is a healthy thing to do, especially because like the research shows that marginal that money has a really marginal um, impact on your own happiness, um, but it can do a lot more for those who have a lot less. So, um, just to throw a few stats at you, someone on a median income in the U.S. Uh, so, which I think is about forty-two thousand uh, U.S. dollars they're likely to be, I think, in the top uh, 3%, is at least comfortably in the top 5% of uh, income earners in the in the world. Um, and uh, if once you get into something like you know, $80,000 or $90,000, you're in the global top 1%. And, you know, it's... And the other thing is, uh, around that level, you actually find incredibly marginal um, increases in, in uh, reported happiness as people's incomes go up past that. And yeah. so at that point, many people could easily be giving 10 or more percent of their income. Um, and uh, especially too, when you, when, when you start when you're younger and you, uh, and you kind of keep getting many raises, I've, I've known people to do different things like uh, split their raise. Um, they get half the money for themselves and then they start giving half the money away. So they always get this kind of like increase in income. Um, but they only start, you know, they start giving more and more as, the, as their kind of um, income goes up. And given what we can, we say we encourage people of means to give 10% of their income. There's historical connection to things like tithing. It's quite easy to calculate. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, we encourage people just to give and to give effectively uh, because that's where you get the biggest uh, bang for your buck because um, charities can be 100 times more effective than other charities. So you, you'll get your 100-fold increase in impact and then you can maybe give 10 times as much or five times as much as a, an average person. Why do you think it's it's maybe better psychologically or or different at least to give say consistently maybe every month versus just one lump sum at the end of the year? Um, yeah, we'll take it to the extreme. Uh, if if you uh, just gave um, a, a, you know, in your will when you passed away, uh, you would have missed out on all of the joy of giving <laughs> over the ah, years. Yeah, um, yeah. But you also wouldn't have been engaging on a regular basis thinking about your giving as intentionally. Whereas when you're doing it on a regular basis, um, A, it's really, it makes it much easier to plan. Uh, you're thinking about it because you're going, oh, um, you know, is this where I want to be giving? And if it is, great, I feel awesome. If I find something else and, and, and switch up my giving, I feel good for having found something more impactful. And um, and then by the time you get later in life and you say you have still built up wealth, which many people do, 
um, and you decide you want to uh, give it at the end of life or uh, as you know, start to give more as you get older, then you're going to be doing it in a much more reformed way. And you've had that joy of giving the whole way along. And you've kind of changed your identity. You're someone who gives. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this, the way you're talking about it as it's almost, it's, it's an intention. It's almost a ritual. It's almost a muscle memory. It's, it's more of who you are versus this kind of occasional like flourish in which you give, I suppose. And it also can be incredibly liberating because the world is full of a lot of problems. Uh, it's there's a full of a lot of amazing things in the world, but there are a lot of problems, and you see them all the, all the time. And it can be exhausting seeing things like the news and social media, and feeling like there's nothing you can do um, except for maybe occasionally vote or um, change up your buying habits a bit. Um, but it feels really big sometimes. Um, but knowing that there are things you can do, there are organisations doing real solid good in the world that are pointing in the direction of the world that you want to see that that is really empowering <laughs> like mm. you're, you're an active participant in, in creating the world that you want to see want to return to this idea though of money versus time i know in, in my family this is a conversation we have a lot is it better to go volunteer one hour every week every other week versus maybe give uh fifty dollars every week what are your thoughts on that they're, they're both good and there's going to be context where one makes so much sense, more sense than the other. Mm. So if, for example, you are really, really close to something. So, for example, for me, I have a public school around the corner from my house uh, where I can volunteer to teach ethics classes uh, once a week in t during term. So it's really easy for me to do. It's something that I... Um, am good at doing uh, that I think is really important that you know kids are able to have these conversations um, in, in ways that uh, really help with their uh, ethical development um, and uh, it, it's something I can do during my lunch hour so it's a really no cost to me and in fact it's a, it's a very enjoyable way of spending my lunch um, mm. whereas if I were to you know travel overseas and spend a lot of money to go try and build a school um, that I could have given that money to support the local laborers in that town to do the yeah. same thing and do a lot, lot more good that way. Um, but, you know, it could also be the case that that experience then inspires you to give more over the course of your life. But the labor itself uh, wouldn't have been nearly as helpful as the money in the first place, um, only if it, in the, it kind of inspires the, the, the money later on. So there are kind of different scenarios. Um, so I often... Uh, go back to intentionality, just having a look at each opportunity uh, in the context of what is it in and of itself and how does that affect my uh, the other things that it might fund. So um, some cases, time is money. You need to take time off work to volunteer. Um, and could that organization do with that money instead? And would you actually prefer working a job that you might enjoy um, and, and seeing your money go to uh, people who are uh, better at doing the thing, uh, employing them to do it? One interesting voice on this subject is, uh, is Peter Singer, who is a mm. very renowned philosopher and has said things to the extent of um, maybe the most ethical way to be is go out into the world, make as much money as you can, um, and then use that money to give back or to make the world a better place. So I, I find that kind of fascinating, especially if 
the work in which you generate a lot of money is one that some people may not find totally ethical. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to it. Um, I think that there are times at which it breaks down, as you mentioned, like, what is it that you're actually doing? Um, if what you're doing has net harm, then that's obviously not going to <laughs> be great. Also, like, is it something that you would find sustainable? I know people that have taken that approach um, and then realized that they just really don't enjoy um, a job in consulting or whatever that they decided to do. Sure. Um, but I, I do know some people that are doing this and doing this really, really well. One of our members... Um, Alexander Gordon Brown. Um, uh, he he did this quite early on. Um, he works in financial services in the UK, um, and uh, he was interviewed in uh, the Eighty Thousand Hours podcast, which is a sister organisation of ours that looks at what people do with their career. Um, and it was really interesting, actually, hearing his views on uh, working as a as a trader <laughs> and and yeah. the role that uh, being being a market maker makes uh, you know can play. Kind of just in and of itself, there is some positive impact there because many jobs do have positive impact, regardless of the if they're in the private sector or public sector or in the charitable sector. Um, but I also think that a career is something that people can really use as a very big lever. It can be even much bigger than what most people could do through their giving. So the question is sometimes, you know, could I do a lower paying job and give to charity? Could I do a higher paying job and give much more to charity? Or could I do a higher impact job? And uh, if someone's thinking about those last two, I think that's someone who's really, really thinking about impact. One thing I've noticed, and I think this has been written about before, is is how, you know, why we often do hear of the, the billionaire giving Oftentimes, what we find is that it's those with the least that tend to give the most. And it's always just that baffles me so much. Um, You know, when there's disasters, it's it's the poor that are stepping up to give what they can. What? Why is that? Do you you have any sense of it? Yeah. So I've seen the data around this and um, it, it, it kind of if you look at a percentage of income that people give at different income levels, the, lo- the kind of lowest incomes give the highest percentage and then the highest incomes actually end up giving the highest as well. And mm. I think that the either end of the spectrum, people who have very little um, or, and know what it's like to have little uh, and people who've you know, experienced things know what it's like and, and want to help others. Um, people who have more than they could possibly do with eventually you know, some portion of them go, well, I guess I've got to get rid of this money somehow. <laughs> um, yeah. And then they start to, to do that. Um, and those in between, I think, are really easily caught up in the rat race. If they see those who have more and they want to be that, but they're far enough away from uh, a lot of hardship, uh, real hardship, that um, they're not necessarily exercising that compassion muscle as much as they could. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, instead of seeing extreme suffering around them or elsewhere in the world um, and wanting to act, it, they might get caught up in the, well, I, this person is better off than me and they're, you know, if I just you know, did this or bought that, then I'd be happier. I've been speaking with Luke Freeman, Executive Director of Giving What We Can, a community of effective givers. Uh, Luke, thank you for, for the insights and the ideas. I, I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely chatting. Have a good rest of your week.
All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And if you're thinking of making an end-of-year contribution, perhaps you'll think of KCRW. You can go to kcrw.com give to help shows like Life Examined and our news and culture and music and all the reasons that KCRW keeps you informed on the biggest things happening around you. Again, that's kcrw.com give. We're also trying to reach our goal of 150 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you use that service, please take a minute to write in, give us a rating. It helps the show out so much. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us on Life Examined on KCRW and have a wonderful holiday season.